All right, saints of the living God. This morning is Sunday morning. It is uh, August 5th. And our message this morning is the restoration ultimatum. I've obviously stolen from a popular title that is in the uh, news here lately. Uh, there's a series of movies about an American spy. Uh, the born identity, the born supremacy, and the born ultimatum. And I like it. It's kind of like the American version of James Bond without all of the sexuality. So that's as close as I'll get to endorsing a spy movie from the pulpit, but it, I like them, and I want to go see that one. In the Scripture, we have a restoration ultimatum. And I wanted to tell you how I defined those words. I went to Merriam-Webster's online dictionary. Listen to this and see if it doesn't strike a chord with you. Restoration has three definitions. I'll run through them quickly. To bring back to a former condition. To restore something to its former condition. That's what we're most familiar with. A second one is a restoring to an unimpaired or improved condition. When the Bible speaks of restoration, it's not usually speaking of bringing back to a former condition, but something beyond that. Something that is improved, unimpaired. There was a third one, one I was totally unfamiliar with, but fits perfectly. Restoration, with a capital R, refers to a time period in English history where a monarchy was reestablished. So in the Bible, just for fun, when we're seeing the word restoration, I want you to carry a couple themes. Bringing back to a former state, but better, and reestablishing a monarchy. Now, ultimatum is something differently. I, I, I've not changed this, not one bit. This is it verbatim out of the dictionary. A final proposition, condition, or demand, especially one in which rejection will end the negotiations and cause a resort to force. <laughs> there is an ultimatum in the Bible, a final demand, a proposition, a conditional request that if rejected will bring us to a position where God Himself will use force. God wants to bring everything in heaven and on earth back to a former state, go beyond that former state to something better, and restore His monarchy. And the way that He's made this proposition is, do it or I will use force. There is a restoration ultimatum. Turn with me to Romans 8. Y'all already bored? I hope not. Because this is good stuff. At least to me it is. I was excited this morning. Who owes in Romans 8? In Romans 8, starting in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation. What's expectation? That's when you are really desiring something. If you throw an adjective in front of it, eager expectation, that's like saying we really, really are desiring it and expecting it. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that 
the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. When you watch shows on television that have to do with restoration, most of the time it's somebody taking an old house or an old car. If it's a house, they're looking for termite damage, they're looking for water damage, they're looking for construction where things were built wrong. They're removing that, removing everything that's negative, and putting in new things. And the before and after picture should go from yucky to beautiful. And that is something that captivates our imagination. We watch people build motorcycles, redo cars, redo houses, all of these things. How many of you have ever watched Flip That House? Right? Or any show like it. Because there's something in us that longs to see something go from yucky to beautiful. Because in our heart, we know it's godly. The very earth itself is held in what is called a bondage to decay. Ever since sin entered the world, the earth itself is in slavery to a state of decay. No matter how beautiful an actress is, she will eventually get wrinkles and sag like everyone else. No matter how beautiful a car is, it will eventually rust and decay like everything else. Everything that we see is in a bondage to decay. And when the writer of Romans, who is Paul, is talking about the earth, he said the earth itself, he personifies the earth, is in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Because when they're revealed, the earth will be liberated from this bondage to decay. And that will bring freedom. There's something freeing about knowing that you have been made new. You have a new start, a fresh start, something good. Turn with me to Corinthians 15. You know, if you know me, that this is my favorite chapter in the New Testament. We're not going to start in the first verse, but I do want to remind you from previous teachings that when Paul says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand, this is a very Hebraic way of speaking. And it is like a rabbi would speak to his student, his Talmudim. And he would say to them, basically by this kind of phrase, I want you to hear my instruction for the purpose of memorizing it and being able to repeat it verbatim. When Paul was teaching this chapter, his language, although it's recorded in Greek, is very Hebrew. And it is just like a rabbi would speak to his students in a yeshiva for the purpose of them committing this to memory, imitating it, and teaching it. This is not just, oh, oh hey, I, I, I hope you remember this. This is a command for us, his students, to take this into our heart, literally memorize it, and be able to reproduce it. That's how important this chapter is. And in the 20th verse, we start to learn something about restoration. The whole earth is in bondage, and it will all be liberated, but there is an order to this. Verse 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. Would you say that death is part of the bondage to decay? I would say it's the ultimate expression of a bondage to decay. If you are bound to a state of decay, the ultimate result of that is that your life ceases. Okay? So he says, For since death, or bondage to decay, came through a man, 
the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Death is the problem in the Bible. Life is the solution. But each in its own turn. Christ, the firstfruits. Then, when He comes, those who belong to Him. We're being given an order of things that will be restored. We're being told first, the Christ Himself has to be restored. Then, when He comes, those who belong to Him. Judah, go get me a glass of water. First thing that has to happen for all of the world to be restored is there has to be one anointed man and he himself has to be restored. Secondly, all those who belong to him will be restored. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. The writer of Romans is the same writer as Corinthians. And in Romans, he's telling us this whole ball of dirt and world system called the cosmos is in bondage to decay. It's in a state of deteriorating. And it longs to be set free. In Corinthians 15, he's telling us this will be reversed, but there is an order to it. First, the anointed man, the Christ, had to be restored. Secondly, those who belong to Him. Thirdly, a kingdom made up of those who belong to Him. And lastly, the earth, when God is all in all. His authority is recognized from the highest heavens to the lowest parts of the earth. Ancient man knew about this, and ancient man longed for this. Turn with me to Job. <clears throat> Tell me when you're there. <laughs> Job 14. Yes, yes, yes. I never turned to the book of Job without remembering that I went to the Hall's house for Christmas one year and I was a brand new Christian. And Brother Fred, most of the time, at least all of the time that I've known him, gets up in the morning and begins to read a devotional, very first thing in the morning. And that morning he had read something that uh, blessed him. And... You know, it's my custom pretty well always to ask people what they're reading when I run into them, and I asked him about it. And he had been reading Job 9 about Job requesting a mediator, somebody to lay his hand on God and upon man and to make peace between them. That set me in love with the book of Job. Prior to that, when I had been reading the book of Job, to me, it looked like we were reading about almost a masochist God, you know, who seemed to like to torture people and whose friends had bad advice. After hearing that, I began to see a redemptive theme in the book of Job that I've never let go of. And I found out that the entire book carries one message. Whether good or bad comes into your life, God restores those who are faithful to Him. And He has the right to bring both into your life for His greater glory. That's what the book's about. But in Job 14, you hear a man in the midst of distress 
contemplating something. The creation surrounded with frustration and it's extended to his life. Some of the frustration that it extended to his life was his children had died. His wife wanted him to curse God and die. His friends had turned their back on him. Would you call that frustrating? Yeah, I bet, bet this week you probably did not experience those things, did you? He asked himself a question. <laughs> and in the 14th chapter, 7th verse, verse, he's really making more of a statement and later he, he gets to a question from it. He says, at least there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again and its new shoots will not fail. He says, trees are subject to decay like everything else. They get cut down, they, they die, they're destroyed. But they have new shoots and they sprout again. And this seemed to be in some way what Psalm 19 says, the creation speaking of the glory of God. Because this gets down in Job's heart and later in the same chapter, he starts to theorize and ask himself questions. Look at the 14th verse. If a man dies, remember Job had been thinking about the tree. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service. All the days of my hard service. Does that sound like frustration? Can you not relate? Has anybody ever had a job where they felt overwhelmed? Have you ever tried to do something good in people's life? With all of your heart, you're working for their benefit, but it doesn't turn out good? Could we call that frustration? The Bible says that the earth is full of the glory of the Lord. But it also says that the earth is bound to frustration. I would submit to you that you can see both in every situation if you look for it. And we're most likely to notice the frustration. Job says, if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. Many Bible scholars think this is the oldest book in the Bible. I don't, but many do. Let's just suffice to say that it's old. And the cry of this book, which doesn't mention Israel or any of the other popular theology from the Tanakh, has one theme crying out in it. He's bound to frustration and he needs restoration. He needs renewal. It says, if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. Job innately knew that there was a power that was higher than him, Yahweh God, who desired to renew him, but he didn't know how the renewal would come. And he's confused. I need you to pay such close attention to me that you'll count my steps but not such close attention that you'll remember my sin. Can you, can you not relate to that at all? Lord, I need Your blessing. I love You. I need Your anointing in my life. But don't hurt me because I did that wrong. You know? I keep trying to get this right, but I'm not doing so well. I need the one without the other. I need Your mercy without Your wrath. Isn't it good that we found out mercy was the currency of the kingdom last week? Doesn't that give you some hope? Job says, my offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. This is kind of like an assumptive close. You know, the truth is Job fluctuates an awful lot in his thoughts about this. Sometimes he even accuses God. Now, even if I were righteous, it'd be like the mountains that get eroded away. You'd wash it away. Even if I were clean, you would plunge me into a slime pit to show me dirty, he says. But here he says, 
you'll see all my offenses in a bag. <laughs> like, right, God? You'll do that? There was hope in him because of something that he saw in nature. He could see that even though nature was bound to decay, it also had new life coming in it. How many of you prefer spring to the dead of winter? Cassidy? Cassidy's the only one in this church that prefers spring to the dead of... Let me ask it another way, since y'all are as responsive as you are this morning. I don't want you to rush the pulpit. How many of you like rainy, cold weather better than you like sunshining, beautiful weather? Good! We have 100% of you then that prefer spring to winter. There's a reason for that. In our hearts, something begins to happen, although we don't always recognize it. When you see new life coming out all around you, it shows you that there is hope for you. Hope for your bondage from decay. Remember that the order of the restoration of the creation has to do with an individual Christ being restored, then those who belong to Him, then the kingdom that He wants to establish, followed by the whole earth. We just talked about an individual. Let's talk about a nation. We sang about this, so turn to Habakkuk. That would be interesting. How many of you have to go to your table of contents for that one? <laughs> if you're in the Thompson chain, we'll be on page 1044. If you're not, you'll be looking. <laughs> Habakkuk is such a great book. It's three chapters long. You can read it in under ten minutes and it will change your life. Does that sound like an infomercial? Except it's free. In Habakkuk 3, we hear a cry about a nation. Job was crying out about a person. But people make up people groups. In Greek, it's ethne. In Hebrew, it's the goyim, the Gentiles. Called nations. Hebrew, uh, Habakkuk 3.1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. Which nation do you think he's talking about? His nation, Israel. He's just received word from God that an invading army, uh, Babylon, is going to crush them. And so he's asking that they be remembered. In wrath, remember mercy. Now he switches to a vision that he's seeing. God came from Timnon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. That's not God's origin. It's the direction he's approaching in his vision. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hands. Where his power was hidden, plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. Some of this language I want you to hear. I'm going to read you some long passages from here and from Isaiah. You'll hear New Testament themes or what you thought were New Testament themes. At His coming, plague and pestilence and the earth shaking. Zechariah 14 speaks about it and that's quoted several times in the New Testament. Earthquakes accompanying His coming. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? What's Jesus returning on? Mm. You uncovered your bow 
And you called for many arrows. That ought to remind you of Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The torrents of water swept by in the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moons stood still in the heavens. Does that remind you of anything? Is that quoted in Matthew 24, Luke 21? And the glint of your flying arrows at the lightning of your flashing spear. Lightning's never associated with this coming, is it? Oh, it is. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in your anger you threshed the nations. Is John the Baptist's announcement about Jesus that he had a winnowing fork in his hand? You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. That are to remind you of 2 Thessalonians 2 and Antichrist being crushed at the coming of the Lord. With his own spear you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses churning the great waters. How many times does the book of Revelation speak about the seas being churned up? What I wanted to bring this up for this morning is Job cried out for an individual renewal. Habakkuk began to cry out for the renewal or restoration of a nation. And when he did, what he saw was a vision. And this vision is recorded here for us to read. It gives you a picture of what it will take to restore a nation. Have you ever tried to get rust out of an automobile? Take some heavy power tools, right? Usually a wire brush, side grinder, you know, some sandblasting, something like that, wet sander. You ever tried to get termite-infected wood out of a house? Boy, Matthew and I have had our share of that. It is not easy to restore something. It's not easy even to heal a simple broken bone through medical standards. What do you have to do when a bone is broken? Set it. How pleasant is that? Our renewal and our restoration is a process that involves painful things. But those who trust that the Lord's way is right, those that trust that His Word is true, will endure it and benefit by their ultimate healing. This is true of individuals and it's true of nations. Turn with me to Isaiah 49. This gets so very good. His ways are... It won't ever change. It will not ever change. It was revealed to the Hebrew people all the way back from the Garden of Eden that restoration and renewal would come through a man. It was a prophecy in Genesis 3.16. It was something that was built upon. Their tribes wondered which human being it would come through. There was even a civil war that at its heart was a spiritual divide. Some thought through the ten tribes... Headed under Joseph, our renewal will come. Others thought, no, through the two tribes loyal to the house of David, our renewal will come. And it was even a civil war in Israel. They understood that mankind's renewal would come through a human being and would be for their nation. What they were slow to understand is this principle in Isaiah 49. Starting in verse 1. You all there? Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Islands and distant nations. Are we probably talking about Israel? Probably not. Isaiah is not distant to Israel. To Isaiah, we would be an island. Some body of land out there in the waters. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, He has made mention of my name. He made my mouth 
like a sharpened sword. Now, you've never heard that as referring to Jesus, have you? Every New Testament theme you will ever find is rooted in the Old Testament. Every scripture you have ever clung to and loved with all of your heart and thought this is the most powerful word of God was derived from Old Testament revelation. Remember that when you study. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in His quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. Jesus is the personification of the nation Israel because He is their King. And in many ways, His splendor was displayed and the ones that saw it were the distant islands and not His own people. Watch this. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him and gather Israel to Himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says... It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. He said, I know what you have on your mind, king of Israel. You want to restore Israel. Well, that's too small a task for you. And bring back uh, those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It had been somewhat of a mystery It's a mystery that Paul writes about extensively. That not only would God restore the world through a man, but He would restore it through a nation called Israel. That much they got. But then that nation would be joined with Gentiles who called on His name and be a restoring force on the planet. There is an order to this, and it starts with the king of Israel, it moves to Israel, and then includes all of us. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer of the Holy One of Israel, to Him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, (laughs) to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, in the time of my favor I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you. Whenever you read the word salvation... Salvation also means restoration and healing. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will be fed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. That's what we talked about Wednesday from Ezekiel 34 and Mark 6. When He showed up to feed them like sheep, who had gone astray in Him being their shepherd, He was initiating the restoration. They will neither hunger nor thirst. What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? Drink this water. You'll never be thirsty again. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and will lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. Isn't that the mission of John the Baptist? To take the high places, make them low. The low places, make them high. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into songs, O mountains. 
For the Lord comforts His people and will have compassion on His afflicted ones. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget her baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Paul had unique insight into the way that this world we live in would be restored. He said the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel, is bound over to decay. But this will start when a Christ, a Messiah, Himself is restored. Well, what has to happen before something can be restored? It has to get tarnished. He had to submit to the bondage of decay because He was the initiating factor. When He was restored, He would have the power to restore all things. So now that Jesus is restored, He is drawing to Himself. Paul said, first the first fruits, then those who belong to Him. A people, not just a people that are His own flesh and blood, but all who would call on His name. And He's restoring them. When Jesus has assembled, when the King has assembled all of the people whom He wants to restore, He will have a kingdom. That kingdom then will be in the business of restoring the whole earth. This is what the Gospel story is about. The people in Jesus' day had a certain expectation. Their expectation was derived from these prophecies. It was derived from dreams that Daniel had along with their interpretations. There would be so many Gentile kingdoms that would rule the earth. They would dominate it, furthering its subjection to decay. But followed by the fourth Gentile kingdom would come the kingdom of God and it would restore or renew the whole earth. To this day, if you ask an Orthodox Jewish person what he is waiting for, the proper answer that he should give if he's Torah observant and a temple attender would be the renewal of all things. Or sometimes they call it the final redemption. They're waiting for the kingdom of God to envelop the earth and set everything right. But there's a mystery. It had to start somewhere. And it starts with an anointed man, the Messiah, who himself had to be restored and then draws to himself others who want that restoration and forms a kingdom. That expectation is displayed in Matthew 19. Turn there. Have you never wanted to be restored? Have you ever wanted to be restored so badly that you weren't really concerned with others who needed restoration? You're like, Lord, Lord, that's great for them, but look, I need help. I need help right now. There are times that's incredibly selfish and there's other times it's the best thing you can do. If you're not restored, how on earth can you give help to anyone else? It starts with one anointed man being restored, drawing to himself others who are restored, forming a kingdom that is restored and then restoring the whole earth. It has to start with a healing that happens somewhere in our own hearts. So many times we have the desire to preach. We have the desire to do something for Jesus. But we have never dealt with the things in our very own lives and hearts that need to be restored. The apostles were asking on a regular basis Jesus questions. And some of the questions you'll see is, at that time, are you going to restore the kingdom? Uh, why do the teachers say that Elijah has to come first? We want to see everything restored now. We want it restored now. 
and they were missing something. They themselves needed restoration before they could be ministers of restoration to the whole world. The same thing's missing in many of our lives today. We want to be good for the kingdom. We want to do something and produce its fruit. But we're not willing to go through our fields and pull out the weeds and undo the rocks. We want to be great teachers for God, but we don't want to clean our own closets. We want to do something for God, but we're not willing to let His work permeate us first. The way that the creation is restored is it starts with an individual who is restored. And it grows from there to a group of people, to a kingdom, and then it spreads through the whole earth. A lot like leaven spreads through dough. At least I heard one popular rabbi say that. Are you all in Matthew 19? Jesus has been teaching on counting the cost. And uh, a rich young man had come to Him. And by the way, Jesus told him, keep the commandments to be saved. Isn't that interesting? That's not Old Testament. That's a New Testament Scripture. He says, if you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. That's interesting since uh, I came from a genre that said, pull them off the wall. In the 25th verse, the disciples are really confused. Because Jesus has said, it's harder for a rich guy to get saved than it is for a camel to enter those little narrow openings in our city walls meant to keep camels out so invading armies can't come in. They were called eyes of a needle. I went to a Turkish church where the door forced you to bow to get in. It was for two reasons. One, so that you had to bow to pay homage to the building as you went in. And secondly, so in the medieval period you could not ride a horse through you know what the Arabic word for it was? Eye of the needle. How about that? The disciples hear that a rich guy entering the kingdom is harder than a camel squeezing itself through the eye of a needle, and they're a little disheartened. So in the 25th verse, it says, When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Saved, restored, renewed. Who, who can participate in this? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What a great standalone verse before we get to the rest. I personally have dug off into restoration projects in the natural that when I got into them, pulled back a board and said, ooh, there's a whole lot more termite damage than we thought here. Thought, this is impossible. One of the beautiful things that happens when you get in way over your head is there is a chance for you to see exactly what is possible with God. I want to encourage you towards one end as we do this. Quit looking at restoration in your life, renewal in your life and the lives of others as an impossible process. That's just the way they are. This is just the way that I am. With God, all things are possible. Every rock in your life can be removed from the field. Every weed that chokes out your faith can be removed. Now, in the charismatic world, sometimes we act like if you just come to an altar and we touch you, all the work's done. No, that's where the work starts. That's where the work starts. There are no magic pills in Christianity, not for charismatics, not for Methodists, not for Baptists, not for anybody. It all comes from consistently setting your heart on what God desires for you. And that takes work. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? God left Peter. What do you call this in sales, Gabe? This is with them. 
what's in it for me? <laughs> if it's hard for him to get saved, but it's possible for him to get saved, what about me? I left everything I had. That rich guy wouldn't leave all his stuff, but I left everything. What's in it for me? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of some things, at the renewal of a few things, at the renewal of the worst things, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me also sit on twelve thrones. We'll also sit on twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel. There is an order to this restoration. We see Jesus restored. That should give us hope. Now, restoration is not just brought back to the state that you showed up in. That's not it. It's brought back to an unimpaired and improved state. Jesus is higher now than the Jesus who walked the earth. He's in a glorified body that cannot die. That's a higher state. Restoration with a capital R is also the restoring of a monarchy. In Jesus, what we see now is God's kingdom, His dominion with a monarch again. This is a visual representation of the rule and authority, somebody to wear the crown. And what He is doing is He is in the process of renewing everything, but it starts with something. It starts with you. It starts with your willingness to look at the man who wears the crown, see what he has become, and say, there is hope for me with your direction, with your power, with no merit of my own except that I'm willing to follow you, I can be remade as well. This forms a kingdom or people who are within the king's rule or dominion. That's what Christianity is. I've decided to be completely restored. And when that body or kingdom is complete, we have a force on the earth that will restore the whole earth. Jesus said there would be a renewal of all things. In Matthew 17, they had asked Him the same question in a different way. Interesting verse about Elijah, by the way, when we get here. Matthew 17, look at verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive out this demon? Uh, that's not where I wanted to be. I'm sorry. 17.9 Quit turning my pages. 17.9 As they were coming down from the mountain, this is a mountain where they heard the voice of God speaking about Jesus the King. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked Him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. Before we get to the next verse, do you hear what's happening? Jesus is saying, I don't want you to go tell everybody that I'm the king. It's not time for that yet. In fact, it won't be time for that until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Why? Because the restoration or renewal of the whole creation started with the restoration or renewal of the Messiah. This is what Paul said when he said he is the first fruits. After that, he draws to him People who go, wow, he was renewed from bondage to decay. He has the power of life. We too can. And you form a kingdom. That's why I sound that, but Elijah. Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, but they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. 
In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that He was talking to them about John the Baptist. From the moment John the Baptist came on the scene, and do you remember what he was saying? He was the voice of the one in the wilderness crying, make straight the way of the Lord. This was the prophecy of Habakkuk. It's also the prophecy of Isaiah. Also the prophecy of Malachi. But he was the embodiment of a figure saying, the king, the one who is going to come and restore all things and himself be restored, is on the way. That means that the mountains need to drop. Valleys need to raise up. Everything needs to get level. You need to get your hearts right and get ready to be renewed. Get ready to be restored. And what was the major objection that Jesus faced? Nobody thought they had a need to be restored. We're already sons of Abraham. We're Israel. We don't need to be saved. We don't need to be baptized. And today, so-called people of faith have the same issue. Oh, maybe one of these guys we talked about earlier with a real obvious problem. They drink too much. They need to be restored. But what about us? Or we say... We're already Christians. We don't need to be restored. Every day, every week, we ought to be searching our lives, comparing it to the one perfect king of Israel in every area that falls short, being asked, compelled, driven to be renewed into His image. We'll see that the Gospels tell us that. Turn to Acts 1, though. Get the big question. What was an ultimatum? It was a proposal, a request, a condition or a demand, especially one whose rejection will end the negotiations and cause a resort to force. We're being invited to let the King renew our lives. We're being invited to be a part of a priestly kingdom. But it is very much an ultimatum. That means that if we refuse this request, in our lives daily, we have ended the negotiations and forced the king of the universe to use force in our lives. Does that sound like something you want to do? Not me. I learned last night through conversation a nice quote. It said, slow obedience is no obedience. Friends, us being slow to obey the king is not obeying the king. We should rend our hearts and get ready. We should realize we are being prepared to be the kingdom that restores the whole world and take it seriously and not play church. Y'all in Acts 1? <laughs> Imagine this. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's standing right in front of Him. You can ask Him any question that you want to ask Him. What do you ask Him? Well, if you're some of the TV evangelists, you ask him how to raise a million dollars. If you are some denominational persuasions, you ask him which ones are predestined to be saved. You know? You might ask him a million things, but what did the Jewish followers of Jesus ask him? So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates set by the Father's own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses. And then he lists all the ways that there'll be witnesses. Restoration starts in the king and then those who are drawn to the king. Then the kingdom is formed. We always want to skip the step 
that deals with change in our life. Have you ever prayed, Lord, come back? Lord, come quickly? Any of those things? Lord, we wait for Your return? You know what is hastening the Lord's return? (laughs) Or preventing it or slowing it? It's not the 1040 window. It's, It's not the gospel of America getting to the world. It's not that. There are many things that have to happen. But you know what has to happen first? There has to be a group of people who are renewed and form His kingdom. Not simply call His name. Not simply wear T-shirts with His name on them or hats. But people who inwardly are being renewed to form His kingdom. That kingdom then will become the most powerful thing on the planet and force the planet's renewal. In Acts 3, we find out something. There's a specific time for this to occur. Turn with me to Acts 3. Peter's preaching. 17, 3.17 Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. He's talking to his brothers about killing Jesus. As did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what He had foretold through all the prophets, saying that His Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that He may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain. Not He decides to. Not He wants to. Not He's on vacation there. But He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as He promised long ago through His holy prophets. We learn from Paul that there is an order for the restoration. The Messiah, then those who belong to Him, then the kingdom, then the world. What is the time? The time is when the people are ready for the King. When the church is the real church. When there is a body for the head to reunite with. When God's hands and feet are working throughout the earth. We're going to turn to a couple Scriptures and then we're going to close. These have to do with your personal renewal. Turn to Romans. It's to the right of where you're at. Acts, then Romans. As long as we're talking about conceptual things that have to do with nations and the overall plan of God, it stays kind of fuzzy. It's kind of like an overview, a schematic. But as we talk about what you must do in your life, to bring about the kingdom of God on earth, suddenly it becomes something that can be action-oriented. The first thing that I want you to remember that you need to do for the time to come for God to renew all things is found in Romans 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The first step is make your whole life a sacrifice to this King. The second, don't be conformed to the pattern of this bondage to decay, this rusting, deteriorating world around you. The third, let His Word renew and transform your mind because something's supposed to happen. As you are renewed and transformed by the reading of the Word, 
you're supposed to acquire a new ability. I've been watching this show called 4400 about these people in a future place who through the use of chemicals and some alien entity have acquired supernatural abilities. And they're all excited to see what their ability will be. I can tell you, some have telekinesis. Some can turn invisible. All kind of neat science fiction kind of things. In the kingdom, we develop a supernatural ability by reading the Word of God. It's not listed in Corinthians 12. It's not laying on of hands. It's not speaking in other tongues. It's none of those things. It's being able to know what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And friends, I want to be really honest. Most counseling situations that I'm in, when people do not know what to do, they do not know what to do because they have not read the instruction manual. They say they have. They own a copy. They read what I read in church, but there is no personal study. The Bible says if you will submit yourself as a sacrifice, oh, that's sacrificing playing golf. That's sacrificing watching television. That's sacrificing doing something else to go be with God. If you will refuse to conform to all the pressures around you and absorb this Word, you develop a supernatural ability. You, different than every other human being on the earth, will be able to determine God's will for your life. Nobody else will ever have that right except you. Pastors, prophets, teachers, evangelists, they're there to help you learn to do that by teaching you the Word. But if you can't discern what God's will is for your life, it's because you don't read His Word. Do you want to walk around in the dark? Or do you want to be restored? I want to be renewed. There's such a great feeling about the word renewed to me. That means you were old and yucky and you were made new. And if you were made new and had to be renewed, <laughs> that means you were old and yucky and were made new. And then you got yucky again and were made new. Renewed. I love the mercy in the Gospel. He will continuously work with you, reshaping you, showing you what His will is for your life if you will just delve into His Word. Come with me to 2 Corinthians 4. It's your next ultimatum. Remember, restoration is an ultimatum. This is a proposition, a request, a demand that if you refuse, will end the negotiations with your king. And there will be no expectation left for you except force. In 2 Corinthians 4, if I can never get there, starting around 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. <laughs> outwardly we're a rust bucket. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. How often are you to be renewed? How do you get renewed? By reading the Word. I taught you a message called Breadwinner. I taught you that message so that you would learn daily how to be renewed. You know what one of the fruits of being renewed is? It's not just that you're able to test and approve of what God's will is, which came from Romans 12. Here you find out that when someone has been renewed, 
their troubles seem light and momentary. It doesn't matter whether or not your troubles are Job's or your troubles are Judas, something minor. Your troubles for you, after you have been renewed by God, will be light and momentary. When you see someone frantic, someone weighed down, shoulders bent over, and they are hurting, it is because they have not been renewed. Your job's not then to throw Bibles at them. It's not to drop big rocks on their head and say, bad you. It's to help them get renewed. And how do we do that? Put them in the Word. Put them in the Word. We need to swim in this. Turn with me to Colossians 3. You've got two more of these. If you're not writing these down, I feel bad for you because this is very much an ultimatum. It's good to know what's required of us. Paul tells us to find out what pleases the Lord. In Colossians 3, starting in verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. This is like a car that was a rust bucket and it has been sanded and bondoed and craned and painted and it is beautiful. And the first thing it does is go out to snow and salt-covered roads and try to get rusty again. God is renewing us and making us beautiful and it requires us to put off the old way of life. Romans said not to conform to the pattern of this world. And have put on a new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its Creator. After reading the Word, after being renewed daily, something should start to happen. Not only should you know what God's will is, your trouble should be light and momentary, you should start to bear an image. In other words, your life should be displaying a picture. And the picture that it displays should be that of God. Can you picture Jesus frantic? Can you picture Jesus horrified, biting his nails, scared? Can you picture Jesus worried about finances? Hmm? Can you picture Jesus overwhelmed by anything except the ultimate sacrifice in which he still won? Can you? As we're renewed, as we are sacrifices, as we are washing in the Word, as we're renewed daily, we start to know what God's will is for our lives. We start to see all of our troubles as light and momentary and we start to show the world a picture of what restoration is like and something begins to happen. Let me ask you real quick. If you were going to go join a gym, right? You have all the gyms in Houston to choose from and you go up to the gym and everybody there looks like me. Everybody on the staff, everybody in there working out looks like me. Do you join? Probably not. If you see people and there are before and after pictures there, and they look like me, but now look like Chandler, then you probably join. Because what you're seeing is a picture of what is possible. Our lives are supposed to show people what is possible when you join the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is supposed to show the whole world what is possible. Turn with me to Titus. i got just a couple more minutes and I don't want to shortchange you with these. All the T's are together so you can make a right. 
in Titus 3, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, were disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us sparingly. Where are you all at? He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. When He saved you, He washed you. He renewed you. He gave you a new start. But then He empowered you by the Holy Spirit so that it's no longer just your will that causes you to read the Word and understand it. It's the Holy Spirit who helps you do it and understand it. It's no longer just your will who looks at problems as light and momentary. The Holy Spirit is there helping to give you that perspective. It is no longer just your raw ability to show a picture of God. It is the Holy Spirit there helping you to show a picture of God. He has not left us as orphans. He is here right with us, renewing us to this day. In the end, even our bodies will bear this image of redemption. We'll turn to Job and then we're done. Go to Job 19. Actually, we're going to turn to two more Scriptures, but they're both quick and worth listening to. Job 19, starting in verse 23. Tell me when you're there. You ever been really sick? Your body ever really hurt? There are those few moments where an irrational fear comes that you will not get better. You will not see renewal. Things start to wander through your mind like, what happened to my kids? What happened to my wife? What happened to our little church? All of those things. There are times that it seems overwhelming. Saints, by plunging yourself into the Word, not only do you see that as light and momentary, you see it for what it is. A scheme and a lie from the devil trying to prevent you from being a reflection of God to the world. You'll also learn that these timings of these events are not coincidence. Your kids don't wake up with nightmares all night. You have fevers all night. Get sick all night because uh, you're at peace and all is well. Those things happen because God needs you to do something on the earth and the enemy is trying to resist it. In those times, you learn what you are made of. (laughs) And when all of you are tested, just like me, you will find areas that you do well in and areas that need to be renewed. And you find that renewal in the Word. And you find strength in the Word. Have we said you need to go to the Word enough yet? Okay. Oh, that my words were recorded. I feel you, Job. We're actually recording this one that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in a rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself 
will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. When did Job get this revelation? In his darkest, deepest, blackest hour. The problem for us as Christians is not that we don't know that we will be renewed, but how to get from here to there. Friends, it starts by putting one foot in front of the other every day and having the courage to challenge those areas of your life that you would rather leave dormant. This week, I want to encourage you to do something. To participate in God's renovation project by allowing Him to renovate some new area of your life. Not something that's easy for you to do. Not something that you've done a thousand times. Break new ground. Strengthen a new muscle. There is some area that you don't like to do as much. Maybe for some of you it's invite people in your personal space. Maybe for others it's some... Maybe you don't like to paint like me. Whatever it is, find something that you can do that shows God you're allowing Him to renovate a new area of your life. The reason that I say that, the carrot there, is that you will learn how to test and approve of what God's will is in every situation. You will learn how to put into perspective all problems as light and momentary. You will learn how to be an image of God in a dark world. You'll learn how to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The stick, that was the restoration, the carrot. The stick is the ultimatum part. This request goes out today during the day of salvation, the day of renovation. Hebrews 2 says, if we ignore such a great salvation, what remains for us except a fearful expectation of judgment? God's request is not a request. It's a demand that if refused, ends all negotiation. Obedience is not optional. And slow obedience is no obedience. So set your will on Him this day. As we are about to stand and pray, firmly decide before you leave this building some new step that you'll take to show God your heart and then refuse, come hell or high water, to relent that. And decide it before you walk out the door so that you won't forget and won't be talked out of it. And show God your heart. Last week, I placed a phone call to somebody I did not want to call just to show God where my heart was. This week, I'll have a new one. But I am in the process of renovation. I invite you to join me in the kingdom of the renewed and we'll see the whole earth renewed. Stand to your feet. Let's pray.